and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are listening to episode one of season two of The Price of Entry. Can you believe it? We've got two, two seasons. This is, well, technically episode 31, if we're going that way. And today I have the absolute privilege and honour to be chatting to Cheryl Yim. Cheryl, how are you going? I'm good, thank you, Brendan. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a crazy world that we live in at the moment, but mm. I'm doing well. Which way do you think I should go? Should I go calling season two, episode one, or should I just continue on? No season, just episode 31. Which, well, which... I think I think either way, it's super impressive. Ultimately, I think anyone who creates anything out of nothing is pretty impressive, hence what I do, which we'll get into. But, did, not, um... did not tell her to say that, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, either way, if you said, episode 31 that's kind of got a volume to it and you're like yeah 31 that seems like a lot but equally season two episode one it leaves it a little bit ambiguous as to how many episodes you had in season one to begin oh. with leaves them guessing so that yeah. could have been five could have been 50 who knows either way we're on to the second season must have some longevity to it legit that's and that's an amazingly detailed answer and kind of also leaves me with no answer <laughs> <laughs> you You're argued welcome. you argued both cases like perfectly. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I'm gonna spend the next week pondering on what to title this chat. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Well, on to more interesting things. Now, Cheryl, once again, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it on a balmy Tuesday evening in January while Victoria's going through some strange times. The world's gone through some strange times. So I really appreciate you uh, rearranging the old schedule to make today happen. Now, how would you describe what it is or say, you know, I just bumped into you, never met you before, and I ask, what is it you do for a job? How would you explain to me what it is that Cheryl does as a job, as a day-to-day? Mm, I, I am my job and so I, I actually really enjoy kind of telling people what I do, particularly women. It really kind of opens up a whole can of worms, which I completely embrace. Um, in some ways, it's easy to describe what I do because it's quite well defined. Um, people kind of know what it means. But then equally, I like to go into a bit of detail if the word just seems a little bit too long and fluffy. So ultimately, when people ask me what I do, I say I'm a doctor. Um, and instantly I met with all sorts of reactions like, whoa, really, you must be so smart. Um, I also get, oh, but you look so young. Which oh, really? And so Wait, with how do you respond group, to that? I say, well, I'm older than I look. <laughs> and then if, if they're Asian or if they seem, I don't know, kind of open to the kind of reverse racism they like to kind of put forth before anyone can put it on me, I sort of say, well, it's an Asian thing. We all look a bit like we all look, we're about 12 until we hit menopause and suddenly we look about 90. So I'm somewhere in between that range. <laughs> oh, no. I, I, I cop a little bit of not the reverse racism thing. Definitely not given this, but the old mustache, if I shave it off, the amount that I get called buddy and champ escalates mm. by at least a hundred percent. Isn't it? Okay, buddy. It's like, dude, I know I look like I'm 16. I, yeah. I'm 34. Give me a break. Like, I come know. on. I know. And, and they'll, they'll look at me and they say, oh, you're the doctor. You're going to do my surgery. And I'll be like, yeah. And they're like, 
oh, okay. <laughs> would it help if I had a lab coat and a stethoscope around my neck? Would that make you feel more comfortable? Like, maybe, come maybe on. A, maybe a pair of testes. I don't know what it is that will make me look, make them feel better. But anyway. <laughs> and so I, I usually just open with, oh, I'm a doctor. And sometimes that's, and people know what a doctor does. So that's pretty clear cut. But sometimes yeah. they say, oh, what kind of doctor? And the easiest thing for me to say is a gynecologist. Yep. Um, and so for the most part, most people, particularly women, would know exactly what that meant. But then there'd be some people, um, and perhaps, you know, particularly if, say, English wasn't their first language or something, they'd be like, oh, what does that mean? And so then I'll say, well, I looked after all the lady bits, <laughs> below the waist specifically. Um, so I look after women's health. I'm a women's health doctor. The good way of putting title, it. Yeah, the full title is obstetrician gynecologist. Um, right. And for the Americans or the ones who watch a lot of American TV out there, it's OBGYN is what they call it. Really? Um, yeah, so they call them, or my OB, or my gyno, or my OBGYN, or I'm Dr. Sherilyn OBGYN. Yeah, so it's kind of a mouthful. Um, in Australia, the abbreviation is more so ONG. So within the medical community, particularly, they'll be like, oh, hello, can I, you know, I'd like to make a referral to ONG. Are you the ONG registrar? Are you the ONG doctor? So it's obstetrics and gynecology. Um, but it's such a mouthful and I don't really do the obstetric side of it anymore, which uh, for- What does for that actually mean know? for yeah, so silly male? What does that actually <laughs> mean? What, and what are those two words? What, what sort of the entomology of those two words? Um, I don't really know, but most things in medicine come from Latin. Mm -hmm. um, and so, as I mean, I can all I can tell you is what, what it means now. And um, an obstetrician is one who looks after a woman in pregnancy. Right. And so it is women's health still. It's still the same um, genitalia, but in the context of pregnancy specifically. Right. Um, and so it's to do with preconception care before someone gets pregnant. It's to do with when they first get pregnant and then it's to do with the duration of their pregnancy and finally the labour and delivery right. um, and the postpartum care as well. So, so that's generally speaking what obstetrics is about. It's about um, pregnancy care um, in the medical sense. So we don't yep. just look after normal pregnancies because our midwifery colleagues are very good at doing that and that is by far their area of expertise, looking after the normal. And midwife, if you're talking about entomology, just means with women. Yeah, right. Mm. And so then the gynecology aspect is also women's health, but it's to do with everything else that could go wrong with the female genital tract that is not to do with pregnancy. Right. Um, and so we talk about everything to do with fertility. We talk about menstrual problems. We talk about ovarian cysts. We talk about pap smears. We talk about vaginal problems, vulval problems, vulva being in the skin on the outside. Um, and then we talk about prolapse or pelvic floor disorders where you've got incontinence or where your organs sort of start falling out um, through various mechanisms. Mm. So there's all sorts of areas within gynecology, but all to do with if something goes wrong with your lady bits below the waist. And for me specifically, I'm nearly finished with my general obstetrics and gynecology training, which is a six-year process. I'm in my- Six years. Sixth and final year. Wait, is that six years- post-university study, right? Post-university, post-internship, post-residency, six years of specialist training. That's a long time. I graduated uni in 2011, just to give you a bit of a timeline. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, and so I'm nearly at the end of my six years of specialist training um, and within a couple of weeks I'll actually be awarded what's called my letters um, and they're called that sort of in a slang sort of way is because it just adds your qualifications in the form of a string of acronyms to the end of your name. So I'm going to be Cheryl, Dr. Cheryl Yoon, MBBS, which is my Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery, Franz Cog, Fellow of the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. You mentioned before that you're not a fan of the mouthful statements. That seems like you've kind of pursued a career that's a mouthful and a half. Yeah, like, it's going to make it look like we've worked really hard to get to where we are, I suppose. And the more letters you have after your name, the more legit you see. <laughs> so got to make up for the young face and <laughs> have lots of letters. Um, and so then because that hasn't been enough for me, I have chosen to undertake subspecialist training. So that means that I am going to be hopefully the specialist among specialists where I want to pursue all the cancer things that can go wrong with a female genital tract. So that's called the practice of gynae oncology or gynecological oncology. So again, a whole tongue twister there, say that quickly three times. (laughs) Yep. So cancer of gynecology things. So everything to do with cancers that can arise in the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, the uterus, the cervix, the vagina, and the vulva. It's a lot. It's another three years. Because <laughs> you're just a glutton for just just keep on going with the stuff. Just keep on. Basically. So how can I take the longest and hardest path possible with the most effort and potentially the most sort of depressing outcomes? Let's go into gynecology. Yeah. So, so I'm really regretting asking the question if I just bumped into you at a party and went, so what is it you do for a job? And you just explained all your acronyms to me. And I'm like, okay. So cool. I, I give people varying um, versions of that. And depending on whether it's you know, someone who's within or without the medical field, I can stop that I'm a doctor. I can stop that I'm a gynecologist. I can stop that I look after women's health. Or I can say I look after women's cancers. Yeah, because I... Is it fair to say, and tell me if this is an incorrect statement, it must get pretty exhausting to have to explain yourself and explain what you do to that level of detail after a while, yeah? Not really. I actually really like explaining it, and I think that's what really excited me about having this chat with you is um, because I really like talking about mm. what I do. I'm passionate about my patients and what I'm learning and training to become. Um and so it, it doesn't really hold me back, but what it does, what, what does get exhausting explaining is kind of how somebody of my gender, my age, my ethnicity could possibly be somebody's doctor or surgeon. And that's often something that is uh, systemic, some varying levels of uh, subtlety. Um, and that is what I find exhausting explaining. It's like, oh, but how can you be a doctor? You look so young. But uh, but how how could you how could you be a surgeon? Um, a surgeon men, things like that. So if you were to to dive into that, so it, I mean, you kind of just hinted at it then. So the sort of the hierarchy of prejudice is age, gender, race. Yeah, probably. I mean, I think it affects everybody differently. And I get that not that 
commonly nowadays, thankfully, but um, it's we'd be kidding ourselves if we said that society has progressed to a point where we are void of that kind of prejudice, even when it comes to someone's doctor. And what do those sort of interactions look like when you run into that? How mm. overt or how subvert is it? It's often unintentional. It's often right. well It's a reflex auction, like reflex yeah, action, it's, sorry. It's possibly, it's possibly um, patients or people who, um, I guess for lack of a better word, act woke. You know, just to simplify, okay. they, they probably just um, aren't quite aware that, um, you know, that opportunities are relatively equal nowadays and I am just as qualified as my male colleague. I am just as able as my male colleague. Um, no matter how I might carry myself, no matter how softly spoken I am, no matter what the pitch of my voice is, how I dress and how confident I seem, it's very interesting because there's a lot of ingrained sexism even amongst doctors. Really? Um, Absolutely, absolutely. Look, I have to say that it's not as bad in ONG as it is in some other medical specialties, particularly things like surgery, which are very male-dominated. Um, but there, there are a lot of subtle things in behaviours that if you mimicked exactly the same behaviour and sort of reproduce them in a male versus a female, they get perceived completely differently. And so if I was That's in an operating, yeah, operating theatre... I was doing an operation and I um, asked a question. If I sort of wasn't sure about what was happening and I asked my superior a question, um, just trying to kind of expand my knowledge and sort of ask, well, why is it that we're doing it this way rather than that way? Depending on what their perception of my tone has been, I've been accused of being abrupt or rude or usurping authority and not respecting the hierarchy. And I know for a fact that if I was a man saying that, that I would be rewarded for my confidence in speaking up to my authorities. And so those biases are inherent. They're often unaware of, you know, from the source of them. Um, Oh, hang on a sec, I've just lost you for a second. The internet has just decided to drop out. Oops, Are you sorry. there? I, no. I am here. Can ah, you hear back. me? Yep, you're yeah. back. Oh, God, I'm on one part. This is going to be really kind of flying by the seat of our pants. No, we're good. <laughs> I've had, had <laughs> sorry, way worse. No, and just to segue out of that, for those listening, if you've ever met Cheryl, to say that she is abrupt or trying to usurp authority is I could not think of statements that were more further from reality and your demeanour and how you interact with your fellow human being um, and how you treat other people. And I cannot imagine you, even at, like, never seen it, you at worst, but I'm just trying to, I, I can't picture it. I can't picture you doing something in that way. Like, yeah. There must and, be and, you know, bruised it, ego in that, that you've asked a question that makes them go, oh, oh shoot, I've actually got to answer this. And, I, oh, no, I've been 100%. put on the spot. She's making it look, look bad because I don't actually know the answer. A hundred percent. That is by oh, far more of a reflection. This young upstart is. 
Yeah, it's a reflection of them rather than any kind of implication about me. Um, and that's taken me some time to come and come to terms with. And, and that, that example is something that actually just happened this year. Um, and because it's it was in an January year, January 11th, 2022. Oh. And I say this year. Now, with the clinical year, we talk about this in terms of rostering. Oh, really? Contracts, yeah, so the clinical year starts in February. Really? Yeah. So when I say this year, I mean the last couple. Wait, the clinical. Wait. uh, Okay. This is is a (laughs) mini can of worms. We're going to segue for a second because this is just a whole new society that's come into my brain. Wait. So the clinical society society is not the right word. You know what I mean? Has its own calendar. Well, no, I mean, you still use January and February for March, but right. in terms of rostering, oh, no. we kind of break the year up into um, terms and, and semesters and things. And, and just like university kind of starts in, yeah. at the end of February, um, medical contracts and medical rosters, at least for junior staff, start uh, in February every year. Right. Um, so so it's weird because you know when it comes to Christmas and things and any shift worker can tell you this like the weekends and holidays don't mean anything um in terms of oh it's we're just getting to the end of the year kind of yeah you kind of get a a sense of that but it's not really same (laughs) with hospitality stuff that I talk to a lot so how is your weekend you get met with a middle finger and a (laughs) ha 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 busy as always what do you mean my yeah, weekend so is Tuesday, Wednesday, you jerk. Like, come so on. The end, so the end of the year for us is, is January. So when I say that this incident happened oh. this year, it was, yeah, in the last 12 months. And because it was in a public setting in front of other people, I was like, oh, if, if my tone was really a problem, I need to do something about that. That's not okay. And so I asked a couple of other people who were in that same operation and none of them seemed to think that what I had said or how I had said it was a problem. So I decided that that wasn't something that I would, you know, take too much to heart. I would, of course, you know, it made me think and it now makes me rethink every time I open my mouth in front of this person as to how it's going to come across, which, you know, it's kind of an effort. Like, it's it's a stressful situation as it is. There's oh. already a hierarchical power imbalance, and now I have to worry about their feelings, so. And you're meant to kind of be worrying about something else? Mm, yeah. But like, the fact that that's got to be something that's going to take your attention now, it's like, because of a mere bruised ego. And mm-hmm. how much of... Because you mentioned junior staff members before, just a second ago. Are you still considered a junior staff member technically, even yes, though you've been in the in the trade in inverted commas for a decade? Yeah. So a junior person is anyone who is still in training, basically. Um, so you're still. <laughs> Yep. So, you know, I fall under the junior medical staff. I get paid by an award. My contract expires every single year. I have to reapply for a job every 12 months. I redo my CV every 12 months. I have to write new cover letters, sit for interviews every 12 months because it's never a permanent contract until you're a qualified specialist. Cheryl, why is it this way? Um, This isn't a deep question. This is just me going, this sounds like... Exhausting. I, honestly, I, I don't know. It's a very Australian thing. I don't know that it's something that happens um, around the world. Um, if you, I mean, the jaded side of me, which is a, a significant proportion at this point in time, the jaded side of me is like, oh, because then the hospitals can get rid of whoever they don't like every year. 
<laughs> but yeah. I'm sure that's not actually the reason. And I think, look, there is some benefit to training in a few different places and working in a few different units and learning how different people in different cities and states do things. But um, I'm not sure why that is. It, it's it's just the way it's, oh, it's a lame answer, but it's the way it's always been as far as I know. That sounds exhausting. Mm-hmm. And was it, has it always been as bad as this incident that you just referred to recently? Or what was sort of your fresh face straight out of university? What was like, what were those days like? Um, they were very stressful because you feel a lot of responsibility um, and with varying levels of support. I have to say that training and working in medicine now is very different to what it would have been like, you know, a couple of decades ago in that patients are a lot more cluey and therefore a lot more litigious and they are more aware of their rights and what's right and what's wrong. And so hospitals and administrators care about being sued for things and they would rather not get into trouble for not supporting their junior staff. And so actually junior staff are quite well supported now yeah, in that okay. as soon as someone is demonstrating aggressive behaviour or is unsupportive or is bullying, there are quite strict policies and protocols in place to action that having said that, because our contracts are renewed every year, because it is such a bottleneck process to get into any specialty or subspecialty position, every year you need new references, new referees. If you are a whistleblower and you speak against your boss, what makes you think they'll A, rehire you and B, provide you a reference? So yes, there are systems in place, but is it perfect? Far from it. That is... Wow. So, and, and how aware were you of this structure going into it? Or was it sort of like a rude reality that kind of you had to learn as you go? Um, I Well, they certainly don't greet you on the first day of medical school as a bunch of 18-year-olds <laughs> saying, hey, congrats on getting the top enters in you know, high school scores in your high school. You are now in one of the most prestigious and sought-after university degree courses. But also, just so you know, on the other end, what awaits you is prejudice, microaggression, stress, lack of job security, and basically abuse. <laughs> so it's a very extreme way of looking at it. Not all of us go through that, certainly not every day, but I think all of us have some kind of story, either whether it's about ourselves or someone that we actually know or with something that we've witnessed about any one of those things. Where does that stem from? Is it purely just ego or is it uh, keeping the hierarchy? Is it the just the status quo, trying to keep that balanced? Is it that if it did change a bunch, you know, I can say it, you can't maybe, is a bunch of these dinosaurs have been doing it the same way since they graduated, don't want the world to be upset, so they just want to enforce how it always has been. And I got treated like that, so I'm going to treat you like that. I would say that that last thing is the most likely biggest contributor out of all of those. I think it's a very complex issue and, yeah. you know, it probably manifests in different ways and stems from different causes for any situation. But a lot of the time, if you went to your boss asking for support or whatever, then they would say, oh, well, but back in my day, this was how I was treated. Back in my day, it was even worse. You have no idea how good it is now. So suck it up, princess. 
it's so much in that, isn't it? Like, mm. it's something yeah. that I'm running into, you know, having these conversations with people in different industries is, is in one sense, this story is so unique, but in another sense, if I overlay sort of that generational gap and that this is how it was for me, so therefore it needs to be how it is for you because otherwise my bad time isn't justified. Um, so I'm going to pay it forward <laughs> exactly. in a negative way. Um, yeah. So, no, it's, it's, I, it's a, I don't think that, you know, I don't think that we're aware of these things going into medicine or certainly starting out as interns. Perhaps now the medical students are maybe a bit more aware than I was. Perhaps I yeah. was a bit naive. Um, but, you know, there, for, for every kind of, um, for every unsupportive and, and bullying boss there is out there, there are definitely a number of very, very good bosses, great role models, excellent examples who continue to inspire and, and motivate me. And so it's definitely not all doom and gloom, but it really just takes one to kind of spoil the entire crop and you know, give you this kind of really cloudy view of the whole thing. But I have to say that it's not all like that. And I've actually been super lucky to have um, to have been surrounded by, by legit, you know, mm. just amazing human beings who who have been so supportive understanding progressive and and you know all the things that you would hope for in a mentor and and um and a role model so yes i've had a few bosses in a few situations in the past like that but by far and large you know my career so far it hasn't been defined by that even though i've started off this chat on that tone <laughs> no no totally understandable especially given the uh, chaos that we're all operating in in our various industries at the moment. You mentioned inspiration a second ago. What was it that inspired or who or how were you inspired to pursue this very specific avenue that has, you know, a half dozen, you know, <laughs> letters after your title. Yeah. Um, well, well, first it was the letters and I thought I just wanted to pick the college with the longest I just, name. I just love the <laughs> alphabet and I just want to be like, I just want as much of the alphabet as I can at the end of my name. Yeah, okay, no. cool. Look, like, like, where did that come I, from? Yeah, it, it sounds really kind of privileged and no, not at all. to say this, but I kind of fell into medicine. Um. Look, I've always been, um, I've always done well at school. Um, I grew up in Singapore and it's a very academically focused society. And so there was a, a huge push for if you've got good grades, you'll make it in life. Um, and it's, I think it's moved on a little bit from there now, but certainly while I was growing up here in the 90s in Singapore, it was all about grades. Um, and I just happened to have a natural affinity for, for just doing well at academic things. Didn't have the best common sense or street smarters, but it didn't matter because I got good grades. Um, and then my parents decided to migrate to Australia when I was 16. Um, and so I came to Melbourne to do year 11 and 12. And, you know, for the first time in my life, I kind of was taught to think for myself, which was not how I was raised in Singapore. Um, and so when they said, oh, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do for a job? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I just kind of assumed doctor, lawyer, engineer, whatever. <laughs> And they're like, well, you know, think about what you're good at at school, you know. And I was like, 
mm, maybe the sciences, I've always liked them. And they're like, okay, well, out of the sciences, yeah, medicine is one of the harder ones to get into. If you've got pretty good grades, perhaps you aim for that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, all right. Well, it makes sense. Let's just kind of aim for what I thought was the hardest thing that I was kind of interested in and then uh, kind of rank my preferences according to enter score. And so I ranked medicine first and then I followed that with like, I think it was um, science or something like that. I didn't even drop down into biomed. I was like, well, if, if I didn't want to do, if I couldn't get into medicine, I just didn't want to do it at all. It was medicine or nothing. Um, and, so, and then I was like, okay, I'll, I'll try for that. And then I'll, I'll never forget the day that the high school scores came out. We still had to kind of gather around the newspaper. And I was at that 7-Eleven that's opposite church on High Street Road. <laughs> and um, I looked at it and, and I'd done really well and I'd done well enough to get into my first preference and that's what I got for that. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess this is what I'm doing. <laughs> so, you know, I started medicine and realised that, wow, I might have been the smartest in my school, but I'm really not the smartest person here. I nearly failed first year. Um, and I what? wish I could say, I wish I could say it was, oh, because I was partying so hard and like experiencing life. It really wasn't. I really don't know what I was doing. <laughs> and so I had to sit for supplementary exams in my first year. Yeah, which I passed along with like 100 other people. So I was like, something must have happened with the bell curve kind of scoring system because there's 300 people in my cohort. How is it that 100 people are sitting Yeah, a whole third. No, yeah, I was like, statistically, something's gone wrong here. But regardless, based on my progress that year, I was like, I'm also not surprised I'm sitting here. <laughs> so. so there you go. Well, so I, I did my subs and I passed. <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess I got to put in some effort into school now. <laughs> so um, work through second year. And, and, you know, at Monash, they only um, graded you uh, in your first, third and fourth years. And so second year, I didn't really have exams that counted for anything. It was like past grade only. And so, it was great, so I passed. Um, and I, I don't know. It was just the Monash way. Um but yeah, I, I'm not sure if they still do that, but I'm glad for it because a pass is a pass and who cares? Take <laughs> so, that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so then in third, fourth and fifth year, you go into your clinical placements. Um, and so you really only spend the first two out of five years of your undergrad medical degree in the lecture theatre and in tutorial rooms. And the contact hours are like, you know, four and a half days a week. Like proper, not quite as heavy as engineering, so they say, but, you know, decent, as you would expect. And then third year onwards, you're thrown into the hospital system. You're the medical student kind of shadowing the intern or kind of following behind someone and having the doctors in the hospital give you tutorials between um, between their clinics or something like that and kind of standing in theatres and observing. So you get a, a taste of all the different specialties almost, um, depending on where you're placed. And so in third year for the Monash structure, it was general medicine, general surgery, um, I thought all of it was quite interesting. I kind of always liked doing things with my hands, so the surgical side of things kind of appealed to me. Um, and then in fourth year is when you're going to slightly more kind of, I guess, specialised um, fields. So we did paediatrics, general practice um, in the community, psychiatry and women's health. And I absolutely loved my women's health rotation. I don't think I saw it coming at all. I, I had no idea of what specialty I wanted to be in when I started med school. Um, and when I did my first women's health rotation, we had to observe and participate in births. Um, and so I saw my first few um, births 
in that rotation and just like my mind was blown I just thought it was the most amazing thing that a woman's body could do um and then and it's probably and, and I think back now I'm like this story is probably not the best for the woman but um I was working in a small I was not working I was placed in a smaller hospital and I was doing a night shift as a medical student just waiting for a birth because we needed to get our logbook signed off and this lady came in having her second baby and the midwives were like oh this is great she'll definitely pop a baby out this shift go into that room get to know her help the midwife etc i was like yeah great okay and so she had the baby and she had a little tear down below um and so they had to call the doctor in to put stitches um in and i'd seen a few of these but you know i've never really done any of that or handled anything and before i knew it the doctor sat me down in between the woman's legs and she took a pair of forceps and she pointed exactly where I should put my suture in and exactly where it should come out. She tied all my knots for me. She checked everything. It was basically like she did it, but I was doing it in the middle of the night when she could have just come in, done it in five minutes and gone home. She spent half an hour with this poor woman's legs in the air and I, I sutured my first vaginal tear. <laughs> that I was just, you know, the thing with medical students is we're so impressionable. And as soon as someone welcomes us, as soon as we're kind of, you know, acknowledged in the room rather than oh, don't speak until you're spoken to. Yeah. We just get so, well, I was very easily kind of sucked into that. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing rotation. I love every minute. I want to do it for the rest of my life. And that was a moment that made me want to do it. <laughs> what a story. <laughs> Poor woman, though. No, well, it sounds like yeah. Sounds like you had a good supervisor. How yeah. how do you keep your hands steady with the like? I'm assuming oh, there's a fair weren't. bit of adrenaline going at that point. Like that's what the baby her. is for. The baby's the distraction. So well, of course, she would have had all the things going through her body that she would have been like, eh, fine, whatever. Yeah. Oh wow. I yeah, don't know so whether then- I'm impressed or shocked by that doctor. <laughs> like, well, I mean, no you got to learn at some point. Well, that's right. And, and no one else that I've spoken to in my field has kind of said that that's how they got into it. Some of them, their parents have done this and others watched a cool surgery or others have a personal connection or something like that. But for me, it was when they took me in and they said, yeah, you can you can stitch up this woman's vagina. And I was like, yeah, cool. <laughs> and then in fifth year, we can pick a couple of electives. You know, we have some compulsory yep. rotations and then there's a couple of electives you can kind of organise yourself. And so I picked it again in obstetrics and gynecology and I was like, look, this is going to seal the deal for me. If, if I still like it with a different team and a slightly different hospital, then this is it. And I, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And, you know, they were very supportive and they said, look, if this is what you want to do, this is how you can set yourself up well in terms of getting into some academia, doing some research. Here's a project that you can get into. Um, so then that all was, was all going swimmingly, but then you have to apply for your internship. So mm-hmm. I, you know, as an intern, you don't do any women's health. They don't let the interns near the women <laughs> or the children, <laughs> maybe for good reason. I don't know. So you just allow to experiment on blokes because it's um, stuff yeah. up. They can't, yeah, yeah, fun. Pretty much. I mean, that's what all the textbooks are based on anyway, men and what's normal for men. <laughs> Anatomy, everything. Anyway, and so they, they let interns loose in emergency and general medicine, general surgery and a few other kind of rotations. just knew I had to do my time, but I, I did want to learn some sort of proper general medicine because it's not like as soon as 
women are pregnant, they don't have general medical problems. They can mm. still have heart problems. They can still have kidney problems and all of that. So, and they can still be on medications for other things. So, you know, I still wanted to get a decent foundation. Um, and so as I was working towards applying for residency jobs, which is just a one, like just time-wise, one, one level up from an intern, you suddenly get to... Um, apply for jobs that include rotations in obstetrics and gynecology. So I was really vying for this job that gave me a 12-month rotation, so the entire year in ONG, because that would get me the experience points I needed for my application for the, for the program, for the specialist training program and everything. So I was gunning for this. And then I got sick. And so I was in my internship halfway through during my emergency rotation that um, I had a biopsy done, or actually I had a lump removed from my breast, and they told me I had breast cancer. And so that put everything to a screeching halt. <laughs> it was not what I expected. I actually found the lump in December the year before, and it was tiny, and of course, as like a you know, medical student going into internship. I thought I knew everything. And so I sort of self-examined and I was like, oh, it feels pretty benign. It's probably nothing. I'll go and get an ultrasound and you know, mammogram. It'll be fine. My GP was like, oh, look, you should just see a breast surgeon at some point anyway and just, you know, get it looked at by a specialist. And so I did, but then I was like, you know what? I don't really have time. I'm a busy intern. My work is more important and I'm not particularly worried it can't be anything bad I'm so young and I've got no history whatever we'll be fine so I waited until um was it May oh. for a specialist yeah so I saw a specialist in May and she looked at all my scans and she was like yeah you know you're probably right you don't have any risk factors chances are it's nothing what do you want to do do you want me to biopsy it soon or do you want to just get the whole like lump out and I was like oh I'll just get the whole thing out, whatever. It's like, okay, well, when do you want to do it? It's probably not particularly urgent. We, we should know what it is at some point. And so I was like, mm, look, I don't want to take any sick leave because um, internship, you know, is so important, career. So I got it out in August during my annual leave because I'm crazy and stupid. Wait, and wait, so wait. So August, you found it in? December. Yep, cool. Yep. Just making sure I've remembered. Yep. Wow. Don't try this at home. <laughs> and so got it out and thought, yeah, great. You know, I'll do it at the end of my annual leave. I'm about to start my next rotation and I'll just get it out as a day case and I'll, you know, I'll get it out on the Thursday and I'll start work on the Tuesday because I had the Monday off or something because of rostering and stuff. Um, and so then Monday she gives me a phone call and she's like, um, I need you to come in. It's not good news. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> And she's like, it's, it's cancer and I want you to come in so we can talk about it. So I, I like the whole thing, like I, I just felt ringing in my ears, everything went blah, like all the cliche things are absolutely true when you, when you get that kind of information about yourself. Um, and so then I drove in and Benson was with me at the time because we had just been to a kind of a friend's event the night before. And so he was sort of staying over with me at my parents' house. <laughs> um, and so then he was there when I got that phone call. He was like, what's wrong? And I was like, I've got to go to the city. I've got to go in. Um, and so he, I, I, I think he sort of didn't come with me, not no, I'm wrong. I was on my own. He had gone home um, the night before. And so I was on my own, but I called him and he was like, oh, do you need me to come? And I said, no, no, I'll just, I'll just take myself in. 
Um, and so I sat down and she said, it's, it's a pretty aggressive form of breast cancer. It's extremely rare, um, but we haven't got it all. Um, and given how aggressive this tumour type is, we need to do a mastectomy, take it all out. And I need to take all the lymph nodes on that side from your armpit. And then afterwards, you're going to need chemotherapy. And so I said, how old are you at this point when this is all happening? 2012. Yeah, so I was born in 88, 23. 23 going on 24. Yeah. I wonder. You were like, eh, couldn't be, <laughs> of right? Which other 20 something year old is like, hmm, I'm going to look after my own health because it could be something oh, bad. Sure. We, think, we think we're invincible, don't we? And I'm, as a doctor, you're like, it can't happen to me. Like, I'm the doctor. <laughs> as a young person and a medical student, it's like double whammy in terms of, I got this handled. I know what I'm. Totally, I know what. Totally. Oh, well, that's the audacity of youth, right? Um, oh, that's a tangent, but yep. <laughs> so then, I went in to see her. She told me all these things. She said my hair was going to fall out, and then I thought, oh my god, I can't go to work. I'm going to have chemotherapy. My white cell count is going to drop. I'll have no immune system. I can't be around sick people, and this is going to be every three weeks. And it's if it's six cycles every three weeks, that's basically the rest of the year. I, I've got to, I've got to stop work. Um, and some people do work through their treatment, but in the medical field, and I was like, oh come on, I'm an intern. No one really needs me. <laughs> so I called work, and I was like, this has happened. I am not going to see out the rest of my contract. Sorry. <laughs> and they were like, oh my goodness. Okay, yeah, sure. So then within days, I was having, I was having scans. Thankfully, it hadn't spread anywhere. She booked me in to have surgery within two or three days. Had the surgery. Um, and then the results came back that, yep, it's all clear now. So it was a stage two cancer. Hadn't gone to the lymph nodes, which is fortunate. So I just needed chemo, not radiation. Um, and that started basically, I think, three, three to four weeks after my surgery. And that went on for the next sort of four months. Um, and I finished by Christmas. Um, and then I was like, right, ready to go back to work. Can I go? Can I come? What's going on? And my workplace said, oh, we've replaced you. Um, we don't have funding to pay for you to come back. So um, sorry. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's fine. I'll wait for the next clinical year in February. And, and you know, if, if you've got a spot for an intern, because you're on probationary registration at that point, you can't really practice independently and you can't just do a casual job anywhere. You have to kind of see out your mandatory rotations, finish your assessments as an intern, then you get your full medical registration. And so I was in this kind of no man's land and they were like, oh, yeah, we've already finished the uh, recruitment process for our interns for next year, so we don't really have a position for you either. So I was and like... At, at that point, are you allowed to pull the cancer card just to go, hey, guys, I don't know if you're aware, but I had cancer. Can you <laughs> let me in? Like, yeah, but then they'll still say cancer or no, we've got no money to pay you. <laughs> so then I actually uh, said, I will come back for free. <laughs> I just need to finish my internship. Really? <laughs> I was desperate. I will never say that again, but I was desperate. And I was like, I just need, I just want to come back to work. I just, I really love my job. I have, I have a goal. You know, I'm all good now, bold, but determined. And then So you work I, for free? I said that. I said that. But you know, okay. they can't do that. Like medically, like legally, they can't do that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> There's no indemnity. Like, how does that work? <laughs> so they're like, oh, no, that's not a big. <laughs> um, it was just how desperate I was to go back. And yeah. so they, they sort of strung me along for a bit, you know, and, and to there, I guess 
I guess they didn't really know any better. They've probably never really been in many situations like this. And they were just like, oh, look, maybe just give us, give us like a couple of weeks, give us a couple of months to sort it out. So I was just kind of hanging, waiting in the wings. I mean, that was probably worse than, than the diagnosis of the treatment. It's like, well, can I go back? Can I not? And this is how, like, obsessed I am with my work. Probably not healthy. In my I'm opinion. glad you said it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Like, what? Yeah, I have, I have that was your priority? Whoa. Yeah, like, I need to get onto this training program. I need to work. What's going on? All my friends are working. I need to work. And they were just, and Yeah, totally. Like, basically and they were just like look you know we don't have funding we just we just need to wait for the funding from like the the government like the department of health the dhhs whatever we need to you know make a case and everything and so they strung me along and in the meantime i was like this was when i was really involved at church and started to kind of really throw myself at projects and like working in like volunteering the community and yeah. like, raising funds for like this orphanage in cambodia which you know about you know that was yeah, it was, it was, but it was like me just killing time. I was like, okay, I guess I'll just crochet and paint things and make things because I don't know what else to do with myself. How painful was that? How, like, was, given like oh, what you just talked yeah. about, your drive mm. and then having to be forced to slow down mm-hmm. and smell the roses. Was that oh. a little bit like, <laughs> um, what's a polite way of saying this, necessary? <laughs> I wouldn't recommend cancer as a necessary <laughs> process for anyone to go through. But you know what? It gave me perspective. And Th- I think that's that's that if I, I didn't that. have that, and if I, if I didn't have that, then I wouldn't realise that, you know, this, uh, that I'm not self-made. It's not just me that's earned this. Like, this has been given to me. Um, and, and I, you know, I believe in God and my calling and that kind of thing. And so I realized that just as easily, it seemed like it was given to me just as easily it could be taken away. <laughs> so I think it was overall after the fact, I could say that it was a very humbling process for me to go through. And it made me sort of learn not to really define myself by that mm. and that if I was without my job for whatever reason that I would still be a worthwhile existence um and so you know I definitely couldn't see that at the time it took me years to kind of reconcile that but I was I was just so annoyed and so angry at how inefficient this whole thing was and like I'm, I'm here a young able-bodied like of sound mind and I can't do this job that I've like spent all this time studying for like a five-year undergraduate degree um which I nearly failed you know I, just, I actually tried at this thing yeah <laughs> And so then I finally, they said, oh, okay, look, we've applied for additional funding. We've got, you know, special consideration for you given the exceptional circumstances. So in the next financial year, we can take you back. So they took me back in um, July. And so between December and July, I wasn't working and basically slowly losing my mind. And then by July, like, I get thrown back. I was like, hell's yes, I'll come back full time. I mean, I've got no time to waste. And so I finished. All in. Yeah, I finished my um, internship that year uh, and managed to secure a 12-month obstetrics and gynecology resident year after that. I'd actually interviewed for that role after I got my diagnosis before I started my chemotherapy, even though I knew I was going to be out of action for the next year because I'd got offered an interview that, like around the time that I, I was going through all of that and I didn't want to turn it down because the interview would be for the next year. And I sort of called them and I said, hey, I just got your email for this interview for this job that I really want. And I know that it's for 
know, 2009, uh, 2013, sorry. I know it's for 2013, but full disclosure, I won't be finished with my internship there because I've just been diagnosed with cancer. Um, so can I still come to the interview? Because I'd really like to meet the head of unit because I want to be considered for this job the following year when I do apply. And they said, wow, weird, okay. <laughs> so I did the interview. Um, after my first cycle of chemo and it's before your hair falls out. So yeah, did it, didn't get the job. Obviously they sent me this generic email saying, unfortunately on this occasion, due to the overwhelming response, you've been unsuccessful in this application. And I was like, well, yeah, duh. Because <laughs> I'm still having treatment. <laughs> but eventually I re-interviewed for the job again the following year and I got it. And how much has this experience with breast cancer spurred you on for your pursuit into women's health and specifically as you said at the beginning around cancer down south and all that your words <laughs> not mine um is is that coincidence or is that like just confirmation no i don't think it's coincidence i think it's calling another yeah <laughs> so I, I i don't think that it made me want to do it more or less or anything but it was mm. yeah, as you say it was confirmation and i was just kind of like you know the, the most direct kind of path if i said that my illness kind of inspired me would be to say i want to be a, an oncologist like a medical oncologist someone who gives chemotherapy or i want to be a breast surgeon um mm. but i was so determined that i wanted to deliver babies and do all of that initially i didn't actually think of going into gynae oncology when i got onto specialist training i just wanted to be an obstetrician gynecologist i wanted to deliver babies do cesarean sections you know and and deal with general gynecological problems but certainly as i've kind of gone through the training program and within ong there's all these different areas and i rotated through all of those in my training I realized that um, my own experience informs how I interact with my patients and it really equips me to, to, to build rapport with them in a way that is quite unique and quite special. And I'm not saying that if you don't have personal experiences like this yourself, that it makes you any less of a doctor or that your interactions aren't as genuine. I think it's just different. Um, and for me, I was determined when I had this this diagnosis that if I got to the other side of it, that I would make it count because I hate wasting things. I hate inefficiency. <laughs> I was about to say, inefficiency <laughs> seems like a shtick. <laughs> I, I can relate. I can so I relate. Like, Look, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna have to put everything on pause and like kind of spend or waste all of this time going That's through this treatment, make up for it. better make something out of it. And I, it, it, I want to be used but for that. I want to be kind of, I want that to empower me to be a better version than who I would have been if I didn't go through that. Um, and so, you know, every interaction that I have with a patient, I've now been on the other side as well. And I think in all of us doctors by this stage in our lives, have probably been on the other side in some way, shape or form, whether it's you or your kids or whatever it is. Um, and I think it really, um, it just gives you a bit of maturity when, when you deal with patients and it gives you credibility and then it builds trust. And then it helps them um, and trust you with their care and the decisions that they're trying to make for themselves. And I think that ultimately contributes to better outcomes. And looping it back to our discussion at the beginning of this chat, the doubt and the prejudice and the ageism, sexism, racism, all those sort of micro reactions and 
those sort of things, the minute you drop that story, it's pretty hard to argue with and it's pretty uh, perspective instilling for somebody that goes, how old are you? By the way, I had breast cancer at, uh, what did you say, 24? Yeah, cool. 23. Yeah, yeah, cool, 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 cool. Shut up. I know what I'm talking about. I've also studied it and I've experienced it. You're all good. Um, that's worked out quite well. Yeah, quite inspiring. I, I think it has. And I thank you. And, and I think that I, I hope that, you know, it helps me be a better doctor. It helps me treat patients um, better. And, um, and ultimately, I think I just want them to trust me with, with yeah, their care. And because you understand, as you said before, like it's this cliche revelation when it gets put upon you that you just question, like when you find out that you've got this thing, you know what that feeling is like personally. So you know how to handle that Mm -hmm. safely. Mm -hmm. And I can help them navigate that. I can help their family navigate that because then, of course, I had to tell my family, you know, God, that was another ordeal. Because it breaks your heart every single time you have to watch someone's heart break over your news. Yeah. So that was actually really difficult to be grieving yourself over the loss of your own health and then to have to feel like you needed to console someone um, about that. So it was it was really heartbreaking to have to tell my parents um, because no one expects child to have cancer you know because as soon as people get cancer they think you're going to die especially so young yeah and um and so you know it was quite devastating to have to tell them that and see what effect it had on them and so now when i have to tell my patients and their families are there i feel for all of them and i always take all not always but if i see that a husband or or even um like a daughter or a son or a sister or whoever is taking the news really hard because sometimes a patient is kind of like well I kind of knew that there was something wrong so let's get on with it and let's get it treated but then their family's just like oh my gosh I had no idea and and they're just absolutely devastated and they're carrying the weight of everything they're they're driving to and from the hospital and all of that so I always kind of take them aside and sort of say hey are you looking out for yourself um you know are you talking to your GP and can we support you in any way? I know that you're not my patient, but you're going through this as much as she is. So what can we do for you? Um, and I think that's because of my experience that I look at the patient themselves, but also the context and make sure that I factor all of that in. That's phenomenal. And in that journey that you just outlined so eloquently, it is so impressive, not only where you're at now, but your ability to process the things that you've been through both personally within the industry and continue to pursue it let alone like we didn't even touch on your transition from singapore to australia and that cultural jump that that would have been in that feels like a podcast for a future time but (laughs) what was the hardest if you if you had to i know it's an impossible question but out of that journey of all those sort of hurdles that you've had to leap over, which was the most challenging? Well, I don't 
I don't know because I don't really process something and say that um, it was hard and stop there. I just kind of go, it was hard, but, or it was hard and therefore I can now do this better or something. So okay, when you ask me that, I kind of really struggle to think of like, oh gosh, that was like, you know, I think all different parts. I'm going to give them all their, whatever credit is due at, at each phase of it, each each segment of my life was hard at the time that I was going through it, I think. And even now, you know, in my sort of first year as a subspecialty fellow, so, you know, when you go into a subspecialty, they sort of call you a fellow rather than an intern resident registrar in that order. But um, it's sort of, you're sort of the most senior out of the junior pool. Um, and often you have to move for that training because it's such a bottleneck that there aren't, um, enough jobs in your home state or city. So I'm actually in Sydney doing all of that now. And so I've been in Sydney since February last year. And so this past year has been a really hard part of this entire kind of medical career, personal trajectory, whatever, because I've moved out here on my own. I've left my husband in Melbourne. I haven't left him. Like I've just left him behind. Yeah, and my cat are in Melbourne. And so this has been hard in its own in its own right. You know, and it feels really bizarre to say certain things that I've been through or done or worked for has been harder than going through cancer treatment. But the reality is that they're just hard in different ways. They're all hard, I think. That's phenomenal. And how much has COVID thrown a wrench in your industry? Has it changed much or is it all pretty much business as usual because babies keep getting born? <laughs> um, I've been very fortunate in that I sort of gave up the baby catching stuff last year or the, the year before last, so 2020, yeah. when the pandemic kind of was starting. Um, and that's because in my final years of training, you kind of get to streamline your rotations a little bit more because you don't have all these mandatory requirements and rotations you have to complete. Um, and so I decided that I wanted to be a gynaecologist and to do that first, I wanted to get into just gynaecology rotations and focus on the surgery. Um, and so I actually stepped away from obstetrics altogether the year before last. Um, but watching from afar, whilst COVID hasn't changed the way babies are made or the way babies are born, it does change how many babies are made because there have been a huge, a huge surge in birth rates. Really? Yes, have you not heard the term COVID baby? I have. Yes. <laughs> so seriously, like hospitals have seen birth rates rise by, you know, I don't know what it is, like 10, 15 percent. Whoa, mini baby boom. Yeah, definitely. And Ooh. and that's, you know, we've still got the same number of midwives and doctors graduating. So yeah. the workforce is the same. The number of beds is the same. Um, the number of hours someone can humanly work is the same. Um, but the number of babies is not. And so watching my obstetric colleague, colleagues go through all of that increased workload was incredibly, it, it was definitely difficult for them. I was sort of out of that aspect of the workforce. So I have to say I was very shielded from all of that. But what did affect me was when Victoria, because I was in Melbourne in 2020, when Victoria shut down elective operating. It's because when I'm in, when you're in the public system, you depend on surgeries to train and as the registrar or as the trainee, you do the operations under the supervision of a qualified specialist. 
um, and you need the numbers, you need the volume, like any kind of apprenticeship, it's up to how many you do as to how good you get at them. Um, and so they, when they stopped elective operating, and I wasn't working in the cancer field then, in cancer everything's urgent, so everything continues business as usual anyway, but what I was working in was elective surgery. things <laughs> like really non-life-threatening, but certainly quality of life affecting conditions. And I didn't get as much operating as I thought I was going to in 2020 and neither did anybody. And so that's, you've got to wonder, like for an individual show, it sucks that I missed out on that experience. But on a wider scale, we have entire cohorts of surgeons, obstetricians, gynecologists who have missed out on two years of elective operating, but their training is continuing. We're not extending training because there's more coming up from below anyway, that we've come out with the same qualifications but with half the experience when it comes to surgical operating. So what, what, what's, the, what's the solution for that? There is none. You know, so it's been really kind of challenging to think of that fallout that we're not going to see the effects of yet, but in the next five, ten years, we'll see that. That's it's a lot. Mm, and, and even now in with, mm. in Sydney, the numbers, are, as you know, crazy. Staffing is ridiculous. I work at um, one of the women's hospitals. Yeah, here. how is it? Um. We have 60 maternity patients currently who are COVID positive, six zero. Now, they're not all in the hospital, but they're all pregnant out in the community somewhere um, being looked after by our team. And at any stage, they could come in still COVID positive to have a baby and we'd have to look after them the same that we would anybody. Um, what are you going to do, put a mask on them? Like, come well, on. We do. So I, I, um, one of my really good friends in Melbourne is an obstetrician and she delivered a COVID positive woman in the peak of the 2020 pandemic in Melbourne. And this woman was an absolute legend of a patient because she wore an N95 mask throughout the entire labour, throughout the entire pushing phase, even after she'd had her baby whilst breastfeeding entire the entire duration she had an n95 respirator mask on um and so all the staff are in full ppe and on a birth suite you're in one-to-one care so the midwife is in that room for the entire shift which is about eight showers and with ppe there's a whole process with donning and doffing making sure you don't cross contaminate yourself um and so you try to minimize especially when supply was like an issue last year the year before last with like oh do we have enough gowns do we have enough n95s or whatever we tried to minimize the number of times one had to change in and out so guess what once you're in the room with a covid positive woman you're there for the whole shift you don't come out <laughs> you don't go on toilet break <laughs> you just sit there the whole time with the woman as the midwife us doctors, we were in and out of all the rooms, so that was a different story. But midwives, I just had stories of them doing excruciating long kind of periods of time in full PPE looking after COVID-positive women who could be really unwell. Um, and they'd have a separate tea room for the midwives for that shift who have been allocated to all the COVID patients. Of so that they wouldn't have to have lunch and things with the other <laughs> midwives because if you Otherwise you wipe everybody else at once. Well, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So it's created so many logistical kind of conundrums for, for various hospitals in all sorts of different ways. But, you know, the healthcare system has tried its best and that's what we do. We, we have to rise to the occasion. There is no other option, no matter what resources are given, no matter what public messaging is out there, we make it work. So... 
What can everyday people do to help that situation other than stop yeah, having babies it. for a bit? That's all right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, we sound like a broken record, but getting vaccinated, it keeps you out of hospital. We know now that it... Oh, I just lost hospital. you. Yeah, sorry, go again. We know now. Sorry. Yeah, we know now that it doesn't stop you from getting infections, but it can keep you out of hospital. And that means that ICU beds can go to people who've had massive heart attacks who need emergency open heart surgery. It means that someone who's had a bad fall and had a brain bleed can take up that ICU bed. Like these are not things that we can help. And yes, to a degree, we can't help whether we get COVID or not, but we can certainly help if we get bad COVID or not to a degree via vaccinations. <laughs> and so yeah. that's why it's been pushed for so hard. Um, and that's why we all believe in it, because we see not just the effect that COVID has on someone who gets COVID, but we see the systemic effects that getting COVID on a population level has on resources, staffing, the system, everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I I feel like that's it's such a, a hard one's not the right word. Talk to a lot of people that are very individualistic and only think about them and themselves and their own and not necessarily the the ripple effect that their actions have on a system that they take for granted or that they're very used to just being there. And I think in Australia, we're so inoculated, pun intended, to having a great medical system at our beck and call um, that we can rely upon that now that it needs to reply, uh, rely upon us to do something quite simple, complicated. I, I, I understand mm. that. Mm. I understand the complexities. Mm. I understand your varying medical. I, I, I understand the nuance. I, I get mm. that. I'm not going to go too deep and personal into mm. that one, but mm. I get it why people are hesitant. I get that. Yeah. However, yeah. not understanding the fuller context and the fuller implications of that when people are purely just like, that nah, stuff, it'll be right. Like, you got to understand there's a set number of ICU beds and mm -hmm. if X not and, and people don't stop falling off ladders is the way I explain it to one person it's like you're always going to have yeah. a set number of guys fall off ladders and need that ICU bed that's not going to stop yeah. so what's the controllable here if it's, yeah, a, well, if it's a cry uh, that's right. what's the controllable we can control this so what can mm -hmm. I do to help does this mm -hmm. help the business down the street stay open a little bit more sure I'll do my part because yeah. at the end of the day, I'm not as important as the whole, but, you know. Mm. And, from, and from my perspective within my field, people are not going to stop getting cancer. Well, falling off ladders and cancer, Cheryl, come on, same thing. <laughs> this, this mean, I'm not comparing one pathology to another. I'm not saying my cancer is better than yours, but you know. <laughs> Do I feel dumb right now? Yep, continue. Yep. <laughs> not at all, not at all. But the reason I'm saying that is because literally as I left work today, um, I received news that we are probably going to have to continue what they call low activity, as in skeleton operating, less or no elective surgeries for the next five to six weeks. Now, you know, technically all surgeries, uh, all planned surgery is elective, but there's different categories. There's category one, two, and three or whatever in terms of urgency and all, almost all cancers, basically all cancers are category one. Yeah. And so we have to go ahead within 30 days of the case being booked. Yeah. 
Um, and that's all well and good that we can continue to do our surgeries, but we actually have no anaesthetists or scrub nurses to staff our operating theatres. So even if the theatres are physically there, there is no one there to anaesthetize a patient because they're either down with COVID or furloughed because they've been in close contact with COVID, whether it's a patient or a personal contact. And so she was saying that, yeah, I can give you these lists, but I can't guarantee you that all the staff will be there. So we can have patients coming in expecting to have their cancer surgery, but they can't. Um, and so then she said, you know, we have to continue with cesareans. We always have to have emergency mm. theatres in case there are complications in the labour and delivery part of the hospital. But, you know, as the cancer service, you guys come next. But equally, I can't tell you that we're staffed. And also, after you've done the operation, there are no beds to put the patients in. We've shut down an entire ward at my hospital because there's not enough nurses to staff that ward because they are all furloughed or unwell with COVID. It's the same. And so my patients are now sitting up on the antenatal ward with other pregnant patients who may or may not have COVID. So we're mixing cancer patients with potentially COVID positive. I don't think we're mixing them at this point, but with suspected COVID, we might be, you know, and these are shared rooms. So what can we do? We've got to put them somewhere because we can only staff this one or two wards. Um, and so I've got nurses who might not be trained in my field looking after my complex surgical patients. And, and none of this is ideal. So, and, you know, because ICUs and HDUs are full up and also prioritised for COVID patients, some of my patients who've had major operations need an ICU bed, but if we have no bed that we can guarantee they go in, we cannot proceed with surgery. It's just not a thing to cut them open and say, well, they can deal with it later. No, that's not the safe way to care for the patient. We just can't do the entire episode of care. Um, and so that's, you know, and then we've also got patients who've come in with far more advanced cancers than they would have if not for the pandemic because people are not wide. getting their screening. Oh, of course. People are not getting their screening tests. They are not getting into GPs. They are not getting, you know, I guess their mammograms or their pap smears. They're thinking that their problems can't be as bad and they don't want to chalk up the kind of ED department because they, you know, I think that, oh, just my little bit of bleeding is probably nothing. I'll put up with it. And so they're brewing cancers for six months before they come in. Um, and I know I can't talk. I, I was about to say, not like you've got a good story for that, do you? <laughs> but, you know, it all comes full circle, right? Oh, so, right. Yeah, you know, it, it, this is what we're seeing. And there are published reports of, you know, huge kind of epidemiological changes in cancer behaviour and presentations because of this pandemic. Really? How so? <laughs> There's just more it, late cancers, late presentations, right. late diagnoses, poorer outcomes, etc. So what can we do? <laughs> it's all a bit doom and gloom, isn't it? How can we solve the world's problems, Cheryl? We definitely have <laughs> only created them and spelled them all out and then just gone, eh. Look, I think we, we can only do what we can do with the resources that we've got, the education yeah. we have, whatever it is. So, you know, I think we've all got to check out privilege and do what we can. Um, and, you know, if we have a choice to not have a vaccine, we just need to kind of check that and be like, okay, well, what are the other effects of that? And mm. what could that mean? And so what am I going to do instead or something? I don't know, maybe don't fall off your ladder if you're not going to have the vaccine. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, but I think like today I had a patient come in um, for a clinic appointment um, and then revealed that she was a bit feverish last night and, oh, actually has had a cough. She's vaccinated, but um, 
when I asked her, I was like, how did you get past screening? Everyone has to fill out an attestation or a declaration at the start, at the hospital door saying, have you had any symptoms? Have you been in a sick contact? I thought have it wasn't that bad. They forgot. They just saw, oh, I just said, no, I forgot I had a cough. <laughs> and so it's really So now you're put at risk. Because so if I you wasn't get, in PPE. Yeah, I wasn't. Well, if you get it, then. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Um, what a mess. And <laughs> that's not okay. Um, and they, they felt really, they felt really bad about it. But well, Ooh, that's dude, cute. like, he's there. Yeah. So I was like, okay, just just hold on a sec. So I walked in, closed the door. So I was like, you can be in your own poorly ventilated clinic room. I'm gonna go oh. and buy my PPE. I came back with a rat and I tested her, and she was negative. Sure, but we know that those are not particularly sensitive tests. It just you know. I, so, I know people um, are like, I feel fine, and they test. And then they're positive or yeah, fine. Yeah. Oh, I just can't taste anything at the moment. It's fine. And they test yeah. positive. And you're like, yeah. Or, or for one day, like if they have symptoms, one day they test negative and the next day they're positive. So they were probably positive then, you know. So I was like, okay, well, this is somewhat reassuring, but you've got symptoms. You need to just go home. You did not need to be here. You've exposed me, the admin staff, the people you walked in through the front door through, like, why? <laughs> just, think, just, just thinking a little bit, I think, you know, I would like the general public just to be a little bit more considerate, just a little bit more aware would be really helpful for all of us. And without going too meta about it, like how much do you think is it like, because the common theme in this little discussion is, is that sort of self-centeredness or that sort of just thinking about myself and, and my own. How much of that do you think is a side effect to being isolated for two years? Oh, it's possible. It's possible. I mean... Yeah. Uh, look, I, I speak from a very privileged viewpoint when, when it comes to lockdowns and yeah. jobs because I've had job security for the last mm. couple of years. I have been able to go out of my house and physically go to work and interact with other human beings every almost every single day despite all the restrictions. You know, I've, I've enjoyed the traffic-free roads and stuff like that. So I, I feel very self-conscious when I talk about oh, you know, I saw, yeah, how hard was that? Or lockdown, yeah. that was so hard because I actually didn't really have to do that. Um, but I think it probably has impacted on people's ability to kind of think a little bit beyond um, maybe it's themselves. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's affected all of our kind of thought processes, the way we process things, our, our, our perspective, how we fit in in the context of society. Like it's all been thrown out of whack anyway, so... So it's it's a lot to digest and it's a lot to yeah it's been it's been a, it's been a, a big couple of years hey eh? mm. mm. if you had a time machine though and you were to go back to Cheryl that was just about to move to Australia it's a while ago mm. what heads up if any would you give yourself um. Don't be afraid to make friends and make the most of any situation that you're in. And the reason I say that is mm. my headspace when I came, when I left Singapore was I was 16. Like I had my group of friends. They were all going to a very similar type of kind of sort of junior college type of school and I wasn't going with them. Um, and instead I was coming over to this new country to make like to come in at year 11 into an all-girls private school. Huge. And I was like, oh, I've seen this on TV. Like, it's not always pleasant. <laughs> like, I know what these Western The one-time TV has probably been true. 
in those scenarios <laughs> is that is a rough move for any kid. It is. And, um, you know, I actually went into, like, I was miserable and all my friends are going into co-ed schools and I was going into this private school and I'd spent four years already in a girl's <laughs> school and I was like, why am I going into a nunnery? This is, this is so unfair. Where are the boys? This is the worst. <laughs> and down the road as it turns out. Um, and so I just, I, I was so kind of unimpressed with my parents' decision to move in. Like, I kind of got it, but I was like, ugh, why? And so I thought, you know what? I don't care. Um, I probably want to do something. Maybe I want to do medicine. I don't know. I just want to get into uni. Like, I want to get into good course at yeah. uni, whatever it is. Like, I just want to get into it, right? So my last few years of high school, it's just going to be about that. I'm just going to come here and I'm going to study. I'm going to wait for uni to start and then I'll make friends and then, and then my life will begin. Like, these two years, whatever, it's a bit of a write-off. And I think I probably missed out on a few you know, friendships, opportunities. Like I didn't actively turn anything down, but I, I definitely had a very closed mindset. And I think it did make my assimilation and adjustment that much harder for myself. Um, and so in that kind of short-term aspect, I would say just, just like loosen up, just you know, embrace it, make the most of it. And now whatever rotation I find myself in, whatever sort of situation I'm in, whether I have lots of work or no work, lots of operating, no operating, I'm determined to make it count. You know, I want it to I make the most of it. I glean everything I get out of it and I make sure that it then is a stepping stone to whatever the next thing is going to be. So nothing's arbitrary, nothing's wasted. Um, and so I think I've changed my perspective as a result, but, you know, I could have I could have had a little bit more of that as a 16-year-old. I love it. Nothing's arbitrary, nothing's arbitrary and nothing's wasted. It's like you value efficiency or something like that. Like we've mentioned <laughs> a couple of times already. I don't know what gave <laughs> that away. But it is, it's so impressive, Cheryl, your your journey and the different things that you've run into and overcome and not just overcome, but you've taken them, assimilated them and, and made them something worthwhile and, and, and brought it into your arsenal of care for your patients and your career and those that you're helping. And it is... I've never felt more overwhelmed and inspired by a chat on this podcast so far slash out of my depth. It's great. It's oh, so good. So <laughs> what you do is is phenomenal and thank you so much for sharing and your time and for what you're doing ongoing. And I really, really do hope that the overall COVID situation here in Australia just 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 corrects itself a little bit to give you and your colleagues <laughs> yeah. a little bit more respite. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Really appreciate your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Brendan. Thanks for the opportunity. No worries. And everybody, uh, good luck digesting that one. That's a good one. Feel free to listen back <laughs> and process. I know why it will be. But thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great one. Bye. shows that I ran was like a shark tank. So it was, you know, just a, a fun little show that I would just, you know, make the content for encompassing different ideas. And I kind of learned to appreciate the, you know, that bigger corporate world versus the startups. And they both had their pros and cons, obviously. Like I love being around people and, you know, the startup stuff was great to all feel like you're kind of working to this bigger goal. Whereas like Channel 10, obviously, it's just, you know, lots of really cool, exciting people around. There's, you know, famous people walking the corridors every day and you kind of, you know, everyone I really liked, like the biggest thing actually for me, like a little bit ego driven, but it was going from, you know, a startup where 
you'd go, you'd meet someone, you'd talk about your job and it's like, oh, I work for this, this app. Have you heard of it? It's called Beamly. And they're like, oh yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe I've heard of it. Whereas yeah. it's like, oh, I work, I work for Channel 10. And everyone's like, oh, cool, Channel 10. Like, how's that? That's, that's awesome. And you're like, oh yeah, sweet. So 